If you would turn with me in your Bibles as we continue to move forward in our study of the book of Proverbs, we are up to Proverbs chapter 6. And so this morning, let's turn our hearts, praying for not only spiritual eyes to see, but ears to hear and respond appropriately to God's very word. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Let's pray. We come to your word, Father, and we believe that your word is inerrant and inspired by you. It originates in you, and it is useful to us for whatever it is you have purposed for us to train us, to correct us, to teach us, to rebuke us, to reorder, as Andrew prayed, to reorder our loves, that we would be a people loving you with single heart and mind and being. And so we ask that you would now grant us your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to illumine, to give us spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear, to melt our spiritual understanding, to be gripped by the glory of you through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is kind of an interesting text to look at. Did you catch how the sage, the counselor, remember what he's doing? He's teaching his son. He begins the text, my son. And it's almost like he has three different topics. Verses 1 through 5, he's talking about if you happen to co-sign a loan for your neighbor. And he deals with that. Then, verses 6 to 11, he says, well, and I don't know how, if they tie, maybe the co-signing of the loan got you in trouble and you felt like staying in bed. Because he really switches topics suddenly, doesn't he? I mean, all of a sudden, we're in Anthology 101. Welcome to, you know, I never took whatever class that would be. In, in, but he says, go to the ant, O sluggard. I don't know about you, but how many of you like being called sluggards? I have to admit, as I where's Carl sitting at this point? Did he leave? With his green jacket, I admit a little sluggardness to come on to me between 2 and 7 this afternoon, by the way. So, and let me give you this, there is a sluggard inside of each one of us, so we're all there. Verses 6 through 11 deals a little bit, by the way, for those of you who don't know, the Masters is what's on between 2 through 7, my favorite golf tournament of the year. 
Verses 12 to 19 almost seems like a totally different topic. A worthless person, a wicked man. It's a real uplifter, isn't it, at this point? You know, six things that the Lord hates. Oh, and in case you didn't forget, there's a seventh one that I really hate. And he goes into this. What ties these things all together? I'm going to tell you in just a second, but let me pull back a little bit more. The word church, do you ever think about why we come to worship? And I say come to worship because so often we misname it when we say we come to church. That's not biblically correct. The word church, I'll teach you a little Greek this morning, is the word ekklesia, which is a compound word formed of ek, meaning out, and the second word is, a, is based on the word in Greek kaleo, to call. Church is not something you go to. Church is something you are, and you are the called out ones. If you think about some of our basic doctrine, what it means to be a Christian in a Christ, the Christian life, you are, the word is regenerate, God takes the initiative and he gives you a new birth. But think about someone who was born. They're born not to just stay an infant, aren't they? They're born to grow up. They're born to grow into maturity. And so when we come to worship, I'm reading a book right now. Author, his name is Jamie Smith. He's a teacher at Calvin College. The name of the book is Desiring the Kingdom. And he talks about when we come as the called out ones, as the church, when we come to, the worship, to worship, he talks about the fact that when we come to worship, there is an understanding of the world that is carried in the practices we do in worship. When we have a call to worship and a confession of sin and we sing our praises and we receive forgiveness and we pray for the people, we hear the word of God and we're filled up and we're renewed in order to receive a blessing from God in order to be sent out into the world, blessed to be a blessing, what's implicit there are practices leaning us towards a vision of the kingdom that is embedded in worship. And Smith says, what picture of flourishing human community is envisioned by the practices of Christian worship? He writes, how does this vision of the kingdom compare to kingdoms that are aimed at in their counterpart? the liturgies of the secular world. He says, in other words, what does worship say about Christian faith? Because he says worship is the ordering and reordering of our being to the end for which it was meant. And what is the end for which it was meant? The picture given here in Proverbs chapter 6 is the sage, the counselor, the father figure teaching his son so that he will be a growing maturing young man, growing up into the fullness, growing in character, making a positive impact upon the covenant community, Israel of the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, contributing to the good of the community so that the community can contribute to the good of the world. In other words, the sage, the father figure, doesn't want his son to just be born, but born in order to grow. Just like in the Christian life, we're born again in order to grow into maturity, grow into completion. Much like the Apostle Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 4, when he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Listen to those words. 
speaking the truth in, the, in love, which is kind of a means to accomplish what? We are to grow up in every way into Christ, who is the head. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, the human task, therefore, is to become mature, not only in our bodies and emotions and minds within ourselves, but also in our relationships with God and other persons. He writes, God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and tell it in love, like Christ in everything, so that we will grow up, and I love this, healthy in God, robust in love. To me, that's a great picture of what the church is to be. Healthy in God, robust in love. And he goes on to say, he says, the way God leads us this way is by not dumping information on us. He says, wisdom and insight are knowledge lived out. We know a thing. We know a truth. We know a person only in relationship. There is a great deal of impersonal knowledge available. There is no impersonal wisdom. We truly know something only by entering it, knowing it from the inside, lovingly embracing it. He writes, that is what wisdom is. Truth assimilated and digested. And that's what the sage is going after. Wisdom. He's raising his son and God is raising us up to grow up in every way into our head who is Christ. God is interested and passionate about his people. Passionate about community. He is created and Jesus died for not just individuals but a family of which Christ is the head and he's very interested in our fostering unity and community. Loving relationships within the family. Which is one, why, one reason why community is such a struggle. See, we need to be realistic about the nature of unity and the nature of community. Something that close to the heart of God is something that our flesh, the world, and our enemy, the devil, will resist and oppose at every point. The flesh, our, the world, and the devil will not oppose something that God simply doesn't care about, that's but something that is so close to the heart of God is going to be a struggle. There are going to be spiritual enemies. We're going to resist it ourselves. The world will resist it. The devil will attack it. So in other words, the sage in this passage, this is how he's tying three things that seem very discordant, but he's tying them together that these are all things that will destroy us as individuals and will destroy relationships. These are things that will destroy us as individuals, and they will destroy community. The three things, the section, this text is real. I looked at so many commentaries. They all break it down, verses 1 through 5, verses 6 through 11, verses 12 to 19. There's almost no other way that I saw, I could be wrong, uh, to, break it, to break it down. And there's three key words. Verse 1, security. Verse 6, that lovely word, sluggard. Okay? Spouses, don't go home and call your spouse a sluggard. That's not, it doesn't sound real nice, does it? And then in verses 14 through 19, twice the word sowing is used. And we're going to see how that comes together. In other words, God wants us to grow as one organic whole called the body of Christ into the head, grow up in every way into him who is our head, even in, into Christ. Healthy in God, robust in in love. And yet there are three things, practical wisdom, why the sage gives these practical warnings that destroy us as individuals and can destroy our community. 
Those three things are debt, discipline, and discord. Debt, discipline, or I'll even word it now, a lack of discipline, and discord. Look at verses 1 through 5. And this is debt, but it's a little bit of a twist on debt. Because look at what the text says. This is not a command saying, don't go into debt. Because the text begins, verse 1, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor. Now, what is security? Security is being a cosigner of someone else's loan. You're attaching yourself to someone else's risk. He's saying if you've given your pledge for a stranger, if you are, and look at what it does, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son. Here's his instructions, basically saying deal with it quickly. Because look what he says, save yourself. If you've come into the hand of your neighbor, go hasten, plead urgently. Give your eyes no sleep. In fact, don't go to bed that night. Give your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle in, from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Here's the counselor, the father figure, warning his son of the dangers of assuming someone else's debt. Now, there are plenty of other scriptures that talk about the dangers of our own debt and stuff like that, but that's not what's being spoken of here. Why is this being spoken of in this way in this particular place? We've got to put this in its broader context. Remember I said what ties these things together is God maturing, growing up, completing a family, building community. He's it. This is God's word to the church. He's speaking to his people. He's giving the worldview of the covenant family here. Trumper Longman reminds us in his commentary, in the broader context, he says, this proverb reminds us that it is wrong-minded to think of the book as a collection of individual ethics. The community is very much in mind throughout. And God had, see, think about the context. The community of God is living in the wilderness, moving towards the promised land, just like what are we called in the New Testament? We're pilgrims, we're foreigners, we're exiles, living in the wilderness, moving towards the promised land. And what does God want us to cultivate? generosity. In the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 28 says, whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes, pretends the poor is not even there, will get many a curse. Chapter 29, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor, but a wicked man does not understand such knowledge. A mature community is growing in generosity. So being ensnared, in this case, you're ensnared to a stranger, you're ensnared to the, it will catch you so that you can't be part of the whole moving directly so that you can take care of the needs of those in the community. In other words, rather than just being able to loan and co-sign, here's what God wants you to do. He wants you to give to the poor without expecting return. He wants you to cultivate a generous heart. Now, we may be sitting here. Let's apply this for a second. The issue then is where does our security lie? See, before we think, well, okay, I, I think I've applied this pretty well. I, I'm doing okay. Paid off most of my mortgage and, you know, car. I own not too bad in credit card debt. I'm, I'm doing well. Or maybe you're sitting here going, oh, goodness, I hate this text of scripture. This is terrible. I don't like this, I've blown it. Let me ask you a question that's true of all, of all of us. Even if we're not in debt with any lenders, 
Who are we in total debt to? The Lord. Very interesting, in another part of wisdom literature, and this is wisdom literature, this is part of the poetry of the scriptures, the book of Job. And I want you to recognize something about the historical context of Job. Okay, when we read in the early chapters of Job, he lost everything. Lost family, lost friends, lost his health. He not only lost his money, he lost his means of making money. Okay, when you read in the Old Testament in the ancient Near Eastern world, that agrarian culture and stuff, and it talks about their camels and stuff, that wasn't their pets, by the way. Okay, that wasn't Fido the camel out there. I think sometimes we have to realize and put ourselves in historical context. Job wasn't going, hey, come on, let's play. Fetch, Fido. He wasn't doing that. Okay, the animals were his means of commerce. They were means of making money. So when they were all killed, Job was not only bankrupt, he lost all his means of wealth. He couldn't pull himself up by his bootstraps. Okay, if the mercy ministry to Job was, Job, you messed up. You got yourself into trouble. Buck up, uh, buddy. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better. No wonder Job would be a little bit mad. That's not really good friendship offered to Job. But in the midst of this, Job asks a question. This is found in Job 17, verse 3. And to me, it's a penetrating question because Job asks, lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? In other words, who will co-sign my debt? I'm bankrupt. I can't do it. Do you recognize, do you see the fact that you are spiritually bankrupt before the Lord. To cultivate a generous heart, the only way you can do it is through the gospel. And the first step of the gospel is to see your spiritual debt to the Lord. And the answer to Job's question is Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Colossians, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt. Didn't deny it, canceled it, wiped it away. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. On the cross, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, nailing it to the cross. See, what is the nature of forgiveness? In Matthew 18, in response to Peter, he asks a question. I love Peter's questions to the Lord. Because Peter's really trying. Talk about someone who makes it his aim to please the Lord. He says, Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And you can almost hear in Peter's, seven? He's like, aren't I doing good, Lord? See, I relate to Peter. I want somebody to say, good job. It's kind of, we like to hear that. And he's waiting to hear. And Jesus says, oh, it's almost deflating. Not seven, Peter, but 70 times seven. Oh, great. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. That's really helpful. That's hopeful. And then Jesus kind of says, time out, Peter. I have a story to tell you. Verse 23, he says, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared. So you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? He's saying, this is what it's like. It's compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Okay, that language is very important. The nature of forgiveness, the reason why it's not wisdom to put up security for somebody else is the nature of the kingdom is to settle. God's going to settle accounts with us. It's a justice issue. Listen carefully. 
It says, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Just trust me, that's a lot of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me. And showing that he still doesn't get it, he says, and I will pay you everything. It just says, and since he could not pay. Yeah, there may be degrees of indebtedness. The key to that text is he could not pay. One talent, 10,000 talents. $5 on the Visa card, $5 billion. If you don't have the $5, you can't pay. Listen to the big-hearted king. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. What is the nature of forgiveness? I think no one puts it like Tim Keller who says, when someone has wronged you, it means they owe you. They have a debt with you. Forgiveness is to absorb the cost of the debt yourself. You pay the price yourself, and you refuse to exact the price out of the person in any way. Forgiveness is to, first of all, free the person from the penalty for a sin by, B, paying the price yourself. We're told that our forgiveness must imitate God's forgiveness in Christ. Well, how does God forgive? God forgives by not remembering our sins. Dr. Keller says this cannot mean that God literally forgets what has happened. It means that he sends them away. He sends away the penalty for them. He does not bring the incidents to mind, does not let them affect the way he deals with us. How did God forgive in Christ? We're told he canceled the record, the debt of our sins by paying the price himself. And when Jesus died on the cross, his final word from the cross was, it is finished, meaning paid in full. And the consequence, the result of that, is that you are released, you are free. And God wants a free community born to grow, to grow into a generous community. And being ensnared, being enslaved, keeps us from that kind of generosity. God wants our wholeness and our freedom. The first thing that destroys community is debt. Debt in this sense. Recognize that in the gospel, you are free. Time for Antology 101. Look at verse 6 and personal discipline. He says, go to the antoslugger. And what is the father this Sage teaching, he's saying, consider her ways. So the wisdom is saying, I want you to look at the ant and consider her ways and be wise. What are her ways? This to me is amazing. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler. In other words, no supervisor. She doesn't have anybody saying, the deadline is tomorrow. Get that work in. Winter is coming. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. One commentator, in fact, put it, looking at the ant, the ant is not a very strong creature, so how in the world did she do all of this preparation and this work preparing for the crisis to come? Only through diligence and hard work. And Derek Kidner, who's written a great book on the Proverbs, describes because... The next part of the text says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? 
Derek Kinder points out that the Hebrew there for the text does not mean a power nap. But the Hebrew word actually means to be hinged to your bed so that nothing can unhinge you. And he goes on to say, the results of this, the sluggard is not able to begin things, not able to finish things, and so makes excuses, so rationalizes as to not even having the ability to face things. And there are many verses in the Proverbs that talk about, it's a study in and of itself to study the sluggard. I love this one because this to me is bringing out the sarcastic, comedic nature of Solomon and the writers here in terms of this. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 13 says, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Really? There's a lion outside in Old Testament Israel. I can't wake up in terms of the, you know, I've got to stay hinged to my bed because if I get up and go to work tomorrow, there's a lion in the streets. It's going to get me. Such is the inability that they have by such fear, lack of discipline. And instead, what is God's design for the people of God? Ray Ortland pictures it this way, and he says, a healthy church is like an anthill. Because verse 6 says, go to the ants, and the ants are always working together. Healthy church is like an anthill. Everybody actively achieving together. Wise people love goals and strategies to leverage their present into a better future. And I quoted earlier from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, but if you finish that passage and go all the way into verse 16, I purposely saved it for now, because when Paul says, I want you to speak the truth and the love so that all of you will grow up in every way, here's the picture of a healthy church, growing up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ. Verse 16 says, from whom... Christ the head, the whole body, that's us, joined, not disconnected, connected, and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. An anthill. Everybody doing its part. Elbows, connected to knees, connected to ears, connected to feet. You want to learn what all that means? Go to Andrew's spiritual gifts class that he's teaching in Sunday school. Every part of the body, though we're individuals, we're an organic, unified whole. That God wants working together in an intentional, disciplined, unified way. Ortland quotes a book that was written by his father, Ray Ortland Sr., when he talks about the dangers of an undisciplined life. He says, your danger and mine is not that we become criminals, but rather that we become respectable, decent, commonplace, mediocre Christians. The 20th century temptations, he wrote this then, but I could say the 21st century temptations, that really sap our spiritual power are the television, banana cream pie, the easy chair, and the credit card. The Christian wins or loses in those seemingly innocent little moments of decision. The title of his book, Lord, Make My Life a Miracle. Discipline and intentionality benefit not only us as individuals, but it has got what is God doing and why did Jesus die? To purify for himself a people. The King James Version of Titus 2.14, where that comes from, by the way, 
says to purify for himself a peculiar people. And that word peculiar doesn't just mean you're allowed to be weird. It means a counterformation, a countercultural, to bear witness to the world that we are. The word holy means different and other and unique in everything we do. We're not just more moral and upright and rigid. That's not holy at all. Holy is different. It's peculiar. And Jesus died on the cross, not just to forgive us to go to heaven, but to create and purify for himself a peculiar and other, a holy people belonging to himself, which is why the last point is so important. If debt and discipline were so important, look with me at verses 12 to 19 and how God feels about discord. He begins a worthless person, and that Hebrew for worthless means of no profit, of no use. A wicked man goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet. In other words, is tricky. He's sneaky. He's deceptive. Points with his finger. There's nonverbal going on. With perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him. Suddenly, in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Next part of the section, verses 16 to 19, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Here is a literary device that is used, six plus one, to indicate that the last one, the seventh one, is kind of a summation. All of the other six are building up and they contribute to the last one. So these six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, and the Hebrew that he uses there is the word nephez, which means soul, which when used in connection to God, means it emanates from the very depth of his being, the core of his being. In other words, this is something God deeply, deeply cares about. And these six things are haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and the seventh, six plus one, the culminate. Why pride? Why the evil? Why the gossip? Why the slander? Why the murder? Why the violence? Because summing it all in one who sows discord among brothers, it divides it destroys not only the end. What you do to yourself doesn't only affect you. It affects everybody else. We're that connected within the body of Christ. And why did Jesus die? God has a passion for unity. And he hates discord and division. Just before Jesus was to face the greatest trial of his life, Gethsemane, going before Caiaphas, Pilate, leading up to the cross, he prayed his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And in John chapter 17, he says, I do not ask for these only, meaning just the disciples who are before him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. We believe in Jesus through the word that the apostles wrote down and are inscribed for us in our Bible. So here's Jesus' prayer for you. You want to know how Jesus prayed for you? He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may, also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. 
That ought to blow your mind away. Let me read that again. The glory that God the Father gave to Jesus. How much glory is that? Jesus has now bestowed it upon his church, his people, those he's praying for, you and I. I have given to them. But that glory has an aim, has an intention, has a purpose, has a usefulness. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world, and here he is repeating it for the second time, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Jesus has given us his glory, the glory the Father gave to the Son. That brilliance, that power, that resource, that which makes us peculiar, separate, unique, so that we would be that one single covenant family that loves God deeply, passionately, with every ounce and element of our being, heart, soul, mind, and strength, physical and non-physical, every ounce. You realize when you come to worship, you're worshiping God with your body as well as your heart and mind. We sing with our lungs. We see, we hear. Every ounce of us is to be involved. Why? So that the world will know that God sent Jesus into the world, that he exists, that he's real, and that he came to be the Savior and the Lord of the world. We are the witness to the glory of God. Our holiness is a witness. How important. Why did Jesus die? To create a peculiar people, a family, one covenant community who will image God back to himself so that when God looks from heaven, what does he see? A redeemed, renewed image bearer, a reflection of him. We image God back to God and the world through that reflection. Yeah, many are repelled, but many are attracted. So that the world may know that the Father sent the Son. Jesus died so that we would be one single covenant family, loving God and being God's instrument for God to use in God's building of his new world, his kingdom, his home. That's why Jesus died. Let's pray. Father, I pray that through your word, you would grow us up. Yes, there's, I know in my life there is plenty of conviction. May we also see the glory, Jesus, of why you died and why you were raised again. That you are building your new world. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So, Lord, help us to grow in our uniqueness, in our peculiarity, in our holiness, being different for you and your namesake, in Jesus' name. Amen.